Hey, 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 film fans, what's up? Welcome into the Second Day Film Podcast. It is the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club. It is Thursday, May 25th, 2023. I'm your host, Brandon Champion, joined, as always, by the philosophizer of film, Mike Nichols, meeting up with us down in Texas. Uh, what's up, buddy? How's it going? Oh, good to see you. Just uh, finishing up the week. Looking forward to a nice, long Memorial Day weekend. You doing anything fun? Oh, you know, the usual Memorial Day shenanigans. I actually might like try and check off the bingo card this weekend. You know, bonfire, baseball game, barbecue, golf course. Don't know if we'll get beach in there, but, you know, we're going to try and check them all off, buddy. You know, uh, it is Memorial Day. It is the unofficial start to spring. And I'm telling you, we had a slow moving encroaching spring here in Michigan. So definitely ready for some uh, consistent warm weather. Uh, but how you doing? You've been, you've been uh, seeing any good movies lately? I've seen I've seen a couple. I've seen some we might talk about now, some we might talk about next time. I've also been uh, binging some shows, uh, Love and Death. I had a friend who was actually in an HBO show. It was kind of cool. It was uh, someone I've met through the Austin Improv scene. Really nice person, really great improviser and actress. And she was actually, if you go watch Love and Death on HBO, uh, she's the singer at the funeral, soloist. And she's great. She's got a great voice. She killed it. We're all very happy for her. Good job, Tiana. Right. Yeah, Love and Death is the, uh, what is, that's the um, Elizabeth Olsen miniseries. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah, Jesse Plemons, yeah. Yeah, I haven't gotten around to that yet. I think there was a um, a Michigan actor that's on that show too, actually, Love and Death. I feel like we did a story about that. So uh, uh, oh. there you go. Couple, I haven't got to that one yet. There's a lot going on on HBO right now and uh, trying to watch it all. I've been, I've been getting into the White House plumbers about Watergate, but I only just started getting into that too. So there's a lot of shows to get to. And we got some, a lot of movies to talk about here tonight. Mike, you recently went to the theater. I've been going to the theater lately four four weeks in a row until this week, actually. I've been yeah. going to the theater. So I've been trying to catch up on a lot of movies. Went up north on Mother's Day, spent some time with my mom. Uh, but you actually had a, a movie-related Mother's Day, right? I did. I did. Okay, so... To all all of our second day fans, you know that we like to try to watch the same movies so we can like talk about them and get back and forth feedback. And uh, this time, however, there were two movies that we each both went and saw individually. We each didn't get to go see. Uh, and uh, yeah, for me, I had the the great privilege, nay nay, the honor of seeing what I'm sure will be considered the defining film of 2023, the movie to end all movies, book club, the next chapter. (laughs) Wow. The sequel to book club, (laughs) the 2018 film stars Diane Keaton, Jane Fonda, Candace Bergen, and Mary Steenbergen. Yeah. So this is a movie about uh, some lovely older ladies who are in a book club. And uh, in the first one, they have a book club. In this one, they go to uh, they go to Venice. Oh, and that's that's the movie. This was a movie I wasn't necessarily going out of my way to see, mind you. This Uh, was this was just a nice. I'm going to make the girlfriend and her mom happy. I'll go to this Mm -hmm. cute movie with them. Mm -hmm. So let me tell you. Uh, what a privilege. Like, like, hold on. I'm sorry. You, you can just tell the listeners that you didn't want to come to Super Mario Brothers with me. You wanted to go to book club the next chapter with your girlfriend. <laughs> you could just tell everyone that. 
Yeah, I mean, it would have been tricky to literally go to a movie with you since we are like a billion states away now. But uh, yeah, like so book club two or the next chapter, whatever. It's I mean, it's a cute movie with, you know, go go take your moms and your grandmas and your girlfriends. see It's just it's basically like, you know, the fun fantasy movie for for ladies. You know, hey, you want to go to this gorgeous city and just spend the whole movie shopping and drinking wine and then have a little adventure and they make kind of cute little you know jokes about their age or stuff like that and then their bags get stolen but that's okay then they can just go shopping and buy more clothes and drink more wine there and then they have to go to a party where they meet these nice old guys and they drink more wine with them and like then they then there's a wedding and it's nice it's it's just like a nice little sweet like you know personal fantasy film and i it's one of those yeah i will say this there's a movie we're going to talk about later tonight uh this movie at least knew what it was this movie knew what it was going to be and knew what it was for and it just did that it was like hey we know we know this is like the girls movie let's let's just make it for them let's have all the beautiful scenery let's have all the great clothes wine let's shop like if this is what the audience wants let's just give it to them and you know what? I'm not going to say this is the deepest movie I've ever seen or the best, but it was a fine, solid little movie for what it was trying to do. So, yeah. If you want a, any sort of example as to, you know, that point that they made a movie for a spurt, certain audience and they hit that audience, this the budget of this movie was $20 million. The movie made $21.6 million, Mike. Boom. So, Success. Every single person that they were planning on going to see this movie went and saw this movie. So uh, congratulations. Yeah. Oh, you might have been the one person that they weren't counting on. That I was the off. one. I was the one million. Yeah, There's... you're the bonus. You're the bonus million there. So what, what letter grade would you get it? Oh, I don't want to spoil a treasure like this with a letter grade. <laughs> you so know, an N.A.? <laughs> i would say this was extra credit so yeah oh yeah it was extra credit <laughs> even i didn't make you go watch this <laughs> congratulations i hope Thank you had you. a nice time with with I, I did i actually found myself laughing a lot more than i thought i would and right. it was also nice to see just like you know there's some good like you know diane keaton's great like jane fond is great uh if nothing else i was great i was like they're still still killing it like older if nothing else it's a spotlight for you know these actresses that have been working for decades now absolutely yeah there's not a lot of like people need to make more movies that like older actors have have a chance to perform in and showcase their skills because they still have the skills so Mm -hmm. yeah all right. Well, as Mike was watching uh, Book Club, the next chapter, the movie to end all movies until they make Book Club the next next chapter in a couple of years now, uh, I was off watching a multi-billion dollar extravaganza. Uh, Mike is so disgusted with that joke that he literally left the screen and said bye. Uh, but I went to watch the multi-billion dollar extravaganza that is Super Mario Brothers movie. Uh, this thing has blown up. Everybody's been watching it. It is, of course, based off the legendary Nintendo video games. Uh, this film was directed by Aaron Horvath and Michael Jelinek. The ensemble voice cast includes Chris Pratt, Anya Taylor-Joy, Charlie Day, Jack Black, Keegan-Michael Key, Seth Rogen, and Fred Armisen. The film features an original story for the brothers Mario and Luigi, They are, of course, Italian-American plumbers who are transported to an alternate world and become entangled in a bad 
and Mushroom Kingdom, led by Princess Peach, and the Koopas, led by Bowser. Uh, these are characters that everyone knows, and going back to the very early days of video games. Nintendo, Mario, who didn't play Mario? I mean, I remember just, if your one friend had the Nintendo system, you were all going over there after school to play Mario. You were going over there to play Donkey Kong. You were trying to get your hands on anything. It goes on so on and so forth through, you know, Super Smash Brothers, Mario Kart, uh, the 3D Mario that came out on N64 was a game changer. So uh, obviously iconic characters. There was an ill-advised live action attempt in the mid-1990s, which I have not seen. Um, and I don't really have uh, any sort of um, uh, motivation to see. No, no, nor <laughs> so, should you. <laughs> I'm glad that they went with uh, animated. That seems to fit this uh, a little bit better. I'm not sure whether they do. Well, I guess they probably didn't have the, you know, the ability to do it. But anyways... I like the way this movie sets up, Mike. Uh, you know, the news came out a long time ago that Chris Pratt wasn't going to be doing, you know, the it's a me, Mario. He wasn't going to do the classic, you know, Italian accent. So what we find out basically from the start of this movie, the very first scene we see is that Mario character that we all know and love on screen. But what we find out is it's a commercial for Mario and Luigi's actual plumbing business. So Mario and Luigi are just real people who live in Brooklyn and they, they sort of try and humanize them more than just being like these mystical fantasy characters. So they're from the real world. And the characters that we know from the video games are just like their commercial moniker. So I think that was a good way to sort of handle that because I know there was a lot of conversation around, you know, Chris Pratt not really doing the the accent instead of doing instead of doing more like a, a Brooklyn accent, which I'm not sure I've heard is, is not exactly great either. But, um, you know, I found it entertaining. There's a scene with a big Italian family around the dinner table. And it really does a good job to sort of set Mario and Luigi in this, how these two brothers really in their family, they're kind of a pariah. They're kind of like outsiders. They're, their family doesn't really believe in them. They've kind of just going through the motions through life. But Mario and Luigi, they always believe in each other. They're teammates. And that's a sort of theme that carries on through this whole movie. So I like the setup of basing Mario and Luigi in the real world and then sending them sort of into the alternate fantasy world. I thought that was a good way to go about it, just to jump off the top there. Uh, are you surprised went that way, Mike? Uh, I don't know. I, this is what I do want to see. I just haven't gotten around to seeing it yet because, I don't know, I, I didn't really care. Like, um, but I was like, this looks, you know, cute. Like, how did they do, I'm curious, uh, like, how did they do a story? Because... One of the things we, we got to see a great video game adaptation with The Last of Us recently, but Last of Us has such a clear story in the game. With Mario, you know, maybe there's some narrative, but there's really not much of a story. How did they deal with that for this film? Well, that would probably, if you were going to criticize it, I think that's probably where you would tap into it because it is a very simple story. I mean, to be fair, uh -huh. they don't have a ton that they're working off of with, you know, in the video games, it's like Bowser wants to capture Peach because he's obsessed with her and Mario has to stop Bowser from capturing Peach. You know, that that's basically mm -hmm. the extent of the story. And that's basically all they really lean into here uh, in terms of actual plot. And I think that's OK, Mike, because this is a kid's movie. It's meant for kids. I think a lot of people, adults <laughs> like us, need to keep that in mind it's a PG movie. It's made for kids. You know, they're going to keep it relatively simple. So yes, it is a pretty thin plot. It's, it, there's not much to it. It's very simple, but I do think that uh, the, the film makes very good use of the classic elements from the game that everyone knows, you know, the star that makes Mario invincible is kind of the MacGuffin of the whole story, but you know, there's the warp pipes. That's basically how they travel through the mushroom kingdom. You know, the cat costume, uh, he dons it when he's fighting Donkey Kong, but there's a Mario Kart scene on Rainbow Road. So there's just um, 
the world that's created and shown up on screen is very familiar and it feels fun to sort of dive into all these sort of Easter eggs that we've known from the games forever. So uh, the characters, especially the side characters that aren't Mario and Luigi, they're a little bit thinly written, but I think they do embody the classic iconic characters and, and they bring them to life pretty thrillingly. You know, I, I, I don't know if we, you know, need to at some point see like a, some people have suggested that we need like a Nintendo cinematic universe uh i don't think we need that but i think this was kind of like a fun one-off tap into nostalgia for people our age and i think it will be a good way for maybe younger people who don't know about the mario characters uh this will be a way to introduce them to it so i think it works on all those levels whether it's you know tapping in whether it's sort of bringing back memories for people our age or trying to create a fun story with new characters for for people who don't have that nostalgia I think it works in both directions and yeah, it's a pretty simple, you know, run of the mill sort of story. Um, I'm okay with that in this case, because I think it accomplished what it, what it wanted to do. It, it, it stayed in its lane on rainbow road, so to speak, Mike, there were no bananas dropped behind. <laughs> uh, so, so I gave it a seven and a half out of 10. Yeah. I, I liked it a little bit more than I thought I would. Oh yeah. This is definitely one I'd like to see. It's I think like, I'll just, I'll wait till it's on or something or like the opportunity was, Oh, you guys want to watch it? Oh, yeah, you don't want to see that. Cool. Like, or honestly, what will probably happen is like, whenever it comes out on like streaming, I'll probably just go on YouTube and be like, search super Mario brothers movie rainbow road scene just to like, kind of see what it looks like or whatever. I don't know. I also, I also should mention, uh, the, um, Jack black makes a perfect Bowser. Like he oh, was yeah. born to play Bowser. Like I'm not surprised. Scene, yeah, there's a scene where he's singing about peaches, you know, because Bowser's whole thing is he doesn't even really want to kill peaches. He wants to marry peaches. So that adds like he a whole new hilarious element to it where it's just like Bowser's not even like that mean of a villain. Like he's almost the whole film trying to prove to people that he's like this super vicious guy, but really he just has a crush on Peach and she'll never love him back. So that's kind of like the crux of his frustration, which... I thought was funny. Um, so it's, it's a very juvenile, harmless uh, film. And I, I think it worked on that level. And it, it's clearly worked, Mike. Uh, $1.26 $1. billion at the back. So yeah. People are going to watch this movie. And uh, you, lo you love to see it as film lovers for us. Yeah. You know, we, you love to see people going to the theater to see a movie like this. Well, this is like, we're seeing more video game stuff now. Like with last of us this super mario brothers uncharted like i mean there's always been video game movies but it's like they're starting to really really invest in them they're starting to make them like the tent poles yeah there's and, a god of war uh, series coming oh oh yeah i could see that yeah so, so yeah that that does seem like sort of the new creative uh, territory that they're tapping into i think with the advent of you know technology just getting better it's made it a lot more plausible for people to sort of look at video games and be like yeah, let's just make a series about it. You know, like there was a lot of things in the past where it's like, we can't make that. That's too complex, you know, whereas now yeah. they're just like, we can run with anything. And, you know, books, They are they running out of books to make, movie, make movies about, Mike? I, I don't know. Maybe they are. So uh, <laughs> movies is the next or video games is the next thing there. But I definitely would say that Super Mario Brothers is worth a watch. All right, so that uh, concludes the portion of the podcast where we're doing solo reviews. Again, solo reviews, not ideal. We don't love to do them, but uh, in that case, you know, we felt 
uh, that we need, wanted to touch on both of those. So we just uh, we just rolled with it. But now the rest of the pod, last three films that we're going to do here, Mike and I have both watched. We're ready to go. We're ready to talk about it. We're going to start with a film that was on Hulu. Uh, Might have slipped through the cracks here early in the year, but it's Boston Strangler. Uh, it's a historical crime drama written and directed by Matt Ruskin. Uh, it's based on the true story of the Boston Strangler, uh, obviously killed 13 women in the 1960s there in Boston. Film stars Kira Knightley as Loretta McLaughlin, the reporter who broke the news. Uh, Carrie Coon, Alessandro Nivola, Chris Cooper, David uh, David Dismulsion, and Morgan Spector round out the cast. Um, so, Mike, I mean, Boston Strangler, it's obviously a, a, one of the mass murderers that everyone's heard of. Uh, mm-hmm. Surprisingly, I didn't know as much about the Boston Strangler as I thought I did. Like I was, you hear that name and you hear the the story that it goes down in the legends, but I, I never actually dug into what it was about. And they technically, I guess, never even caught someone. So there's a lot of different theories about who it might be. It could have been multiple people. This film, I think, does a good job of taking a realistic approach to how the story broke and how they tracked it down while still sort of maybe like working in uh, several different working theories to kind of give us an idea of at least uh, the mythos around the whole thing. So uh, at the very start, I would say that this movie provides a good glimpse into what was actually going on during that time period in Boston. Yeah, um, uh, kind of the same as you. Boston Strangler is like, I know, I know, oh, it was someone who killed people in Boston, like, but I didn't know much about the story. Um, so this is, if, if you're interested in the true crime of what happened, like, this is a good movie to watch because it does kind of feel a little bit like a documentary that just happens to star Kara Knightley and Carrie Coon. Like, it's not like it's a, it's, I don't know, it's not the most gripping personal story. Like, as much as the main characters were, it was really interesting what they did. You don't really feel that invested in them. At least I didn't. And, and I don't know if it was, I think it was the director. I'm, I'm not sure why some no, of the choices I, were made, but like, I think it's because, sorry to interrupt, but I, well, totally you're good. Agree, I totally agree with that point because that would be my main criticism of the movie is the acting's not the issue. I don't even know if it's the writing. I just think that, you know, we're here to watch these women work. We're here to watch them tra- track down this story and yeah. I don't know if like the actual movie versions of these women, if there's enough really there to have a true arc or for, for Kira Knightley and Carrie Coon to really extract much from the character, because really they're just taking a very realistic blow by blow, blow sort of methodical uh, procedural approach to this. So I agree. It sort of struggles with characterization um, because it does almost feel like it's they're more just trying to tell us what happens and i'm just not sure there's enough there for the actresses to really do much with it but yeah which is it's no i I agree with you because it's too bad because it's like i I was thinking about you when i was watching i was like man like this is a movie about reporters like you are still a reporter i was a reporter you know we met in studying journalism in college together like you know i was like i should be caring about this more than i am and i'm just not and it's like and I also really like Kara Knightley, and I I love Carrie Coon. Carrie Coon's probably one of my favorite like actresses, and I'm just like, I'm not caring about this. The leftovers, like, man, she's so good in that. She's great in the leftovers. She's great in the Gilded Age, which is on HBO right now. Check that out. Um, and she was she was good in this. Like her character was interesting. There was something more stern and like carefree about her that was really yeah there was a refreshing menace to it but uh, no i really liked the way she did it and i was like yeah like i just this there doesn't seem to be that much struggle like i think they they were trying to show like hey it was definitely tough 
tougher for women journalists back then. And I've, yeah, I mean, I've definitely heard stories from some of the older female reporters that we've worked with who've like some, they dealt with some really nasty sexist shit that happened to them. And they yet, focused on that a lot. They did, but yet, whenever they needed to know a story, someone just kind of told it to them. Like they see it, you see it reflected in the conversations they have with like maybe their husband, like with Kieran's husband or with like, like their editor in chief who's played by Chris Cooper. But like, I don't know. As soon as they go out to ask a cop what happened, he's like, oh, hello. So this is what happened. We think it's over here. We don't know though. Mm-hmm. Or it's like, oh, well, I, you know, that was really a kick out of the reporters just walking up into crime scenes, like, yeah, going under the table, asking like, questions. Yeah, like, like oh, that's not really how it works, but uh, yeah. maybe, maybe it worked back then. But and yeah, it I, like I don't it was know. Kind of talking out of both sides of it, it almost felt like it was like, I think it, this was sort of like a feminist story. They wanted to point out, obviously, that two female reporters broke this massive story and that's yeah. the story we're telling without questions. it is it, no question if if this the the movie tried to focus on that stuff but it almost felt sort of like forced in there at times like it didn't flow within or like then they would go into the cop shop and they would show you know, like the sexism with the cops but then you're right the next scene she's meeting with the reporter at the bar and she's getting all this access so it's kind of like is this a good thing or a bad thing or are you just trying to tell us what happened you know i maybe that's what yeah. it is it, it's no spotlight this movie it, it doesn't feel no. like it's obviously taking that same sort of approach to filmmaking but you know it's even in the same city right but it's it, it just doesn't feel as fluid it doesn't feel as kinetic you know when, when you're watching spotlight and you're in those newsroom scenes and they're all mm. bouncing ideas off yeah. each other and they're, it just feels so like kinetic you know yeah. it feels electric you can feel the electricity between the actors actors and actresses you can feel the energy in the room this one just feels almost more like it's kind of like a cheap ripoff or it's going through the motions right you know, it didn't feel yeah fluid and it didn't feel as natural in that way what did feel natural for me in this movie was sort of the vibe of it um you know whether it was i think that it had a very dark feel to it you know when you're watching it it was kind of like as you're watching Kira and I sort of like lurk around the back alleys of Boston or like on the docks or like meeting people in these like dimly lit bars, it does sort of add to this like constant feeling and sense of dread that you have in the movie. And then they're intercutting it with like these scenes of the Boston Trangler abducting women. So by yeah. doing that periodically throughout the movie, I think it does sort of help um, firmly plant us in a city that is, captured in terror at that point in time yeah i definitely think it did a good the one thing i think it did do a good job of was showing just how kind of like scary this would have been for people especially like for that like them as female reporters like this person is potentially targeting them and they're the ones going out there they're going to meet up with someone alone to do an interview like there was a lot of danger the one scene when Kira knightley like thinks that she's in the killer's house and she's yeah. leave, you know yeah that was yeah. i don't know if that actually happened or if that was kind of like them creating drama uh maybe a little bit of both but uh, it, it probably happened i wouldn't be surprised if it did i mean even if like even if this movie isn't your thing like i hope this doesn't take away anything from the real loretta mclaughlin or gene cole like and what they did like those two women are amazing and this like i feel like i'm glad there's a movie like there their story of their storytelling deserves to be told. However, We're judging I just, a movie here. yeah, I kind of just wish it hadn't been this movie because I, I feel like the movie tried to take itself seriously. And yet sometimes that kind of hurt it. Like 
it would have just been like you you went back to the whole thing about the way spotlight like it just feels so like like you're really in a newsroom i think the word for me that was missing here was like it didn't feel authentic like with spotlight you, you watch those scenes and like you know i'm like oh yeah like that that's what when i was a reporter that's probably what i would have been thinking about or yeah you know i've had conversations like that with editors or whatever with this one i'm like i'm not saying anything about what what loretta or what gene are talking to each other about that really makes me think of journalism or why they're passionate about telling the story or getting this out there or what their thought process is for how they're thinking. There was one interesting thing where they were going through a phone book and I was like, and they were talking about how they were systematically doing that. That was kind of interesting a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, And like what, like, but that was kind of more Carrie Schoon scene than it was Kara Knightley's and Kara Knightley's the lead. So it kind of been, so I don't know. I think it's a, if the movie hadn't like, it was also dark. Like I know that their movies are being made darker lately, but like there was like a there was like a filter and tone and coloring to this movie that I'm like, this doesn't need to look like this. Like can it like can it just be a little bit brighter? I don't know why every period piece suddenly like there's no color in it. As if like oh, it's a a movie about murder. So I mean, I do get them trying to hit the tone with that. Yeah, but I think it would have felt maybe scarier, or you would have felt more in the moment, and you would have felt the fear with them had it felt more like it looked real, if that makes yeah. sense. Because if you put too much filter and color on a movie, I think it actually disconnects you a little bit from it. It makes you feel like, oh, that's a fantasy. Oh, that's... But if you like make the coloring look like what you feel like you'd actually see with your real eye if you're in the moment, it kind of makes you feel a little bit more like, oh, geez. Like, this could... Like, you feel right there with it. And I think in some ways, the way that it was directed and the way they did the cinematography, it took away from frankly, the good performances that were happening on the screen. So. I mean, it is it is a little bit dreary. I will say yeah. it's yeah. It's kind of like a, a, it's sort of like a dreary slog to watch. And it doesn't have a lot of, regardless of what emotion you're talking about, it doesn't really have any emotion. Like, it feels very surface level. You know, it doesn't feel like we have these sort of stakes or emotional depth that a film like Spotlight or even, you know, the wire scenes have, you know, it's it just, or the newsroom. It just feels sort of... Yeah. Um, it feels sort of like staged and they're going through the motions. It just doesn't feel as authentic. I agree with that. But at the same time, there's some good moments. The performances are solid. Uh, still don't know how British people make themselves sound American. Uh, it just blows my mind. Um, but Kira Knightley, I guess that's why she's a fantastic actress. So uh, Boston Strangler, you know, not a bad watch. Uh, I think if you're into, if you're into the big whole murder mystery uh, genre of podcasts, you'll probably enjoy it. I gave it a six out of 10. Yeah, and I just want to clarify something I said. Like, I don't think that's always when I was talking about like the coloring and the cinematography of a movie, like the way that it looks. I don't think that's always a role. Like, I think it's fine if sometimes movies are like hyper colorized or even darker and more gray looking than they need to be. Like, I, you know, I don't think my the rule I said applies to every movie ever, but I think about a movie like The Northman. That yeah or like that stuff and it helps it out like that yeah it Schindler, helps it out because it has that look yeah schindler's list is in black and white you know but i think it's the right choice for schindler's list because because he was trying to make you feel like you were looking at world war ii footage and we saw the holocaust in black and white so that's how he was going to tell the story and it's like great great choice you know i think it depends on the movie for this one i feel like the way they were trying to instill the fear i think it would have worked better had they not 
change the coloring the way they did. Anyway, just just my opinion. Just my opinion. Um, I don't think it's a rule for all movies ever, but it's like just I, I don't know my thoughts. Um, yeah, I'll give this one a. I don't know. I'll give it a B minus because it was like the equation was there. You know, main character, good acting. Like you, they have a goal. They get through the story. They ultimately reveal things that were interesting like i as a watcher was like oh wow i did not know this about the boston strangler maybe there was more than one oh like at the end i was like that's interesting Mm -hmm. but like but you know it was a little bit of boring getting there so i give it a b minus it's it succeeds in telling the story of the boston strangler and the story of these women's work I don't know if it succeeds as much in filling out the rest of the plot in the story. Yeah. Or like, why did, yeah. Why did this have to be a movie versus a documentary? Like, right. yeah, right. it might've worked better as a documentary for sure. It actually. Probably, probably would have. <laughs> Anyways, that's the Boston Strangler. Uh, yeah. It's on Hulu. You can watch it now. Um, all right. Two more films to get to here. Uh, the first one we're going to get with here is air. It's a movie. I just got done watching. It's a biographical sports drama directed by Ben Affleck. Uh, it's a film based on the true events about the origin of the Air Jordan basketball shoe line. Um, and the film basically chronicles uh, a Nike employee played by Matt Damon and his efforts to strike a business deal with Michael Jordan. Um, so, Mike, this is, uh, I think, an interesting idea for a movie. I think this is a smart. I was pumped to see Ben Affleck take this on. You know, we, we know he loves sports. We know that uh, he'll he'll give this the care that it needs. Um, and so I think it's a brilliant idea to make a movie on this. You know, sometimes these little slice of life, uh, sort of snapshot in time, sports business stories, uh, can work. I think this movie works for a lot of the same reasons that a film like Moneyball, uh, worked where it's just sort of kind of shining the light on a a group of sort of maybe, uh, misunderstood, but brilliant and sort of maybe risky flawed people that decide to take a shot on something. And, you know, we know the rest of the story. So, um, this is going to be a movie that's going to be interested to people though, because shoes uh, and especially Jordans, there are a lot more than shoes at this point, you know, there it's a whole culture behind Jordans these days. And um, to do a movie about the origins of that culture, um, I think was a really good idea. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it is always interesting to me whenever a product gets its own movie, like in some ways this, it's not a product, Mike. Jordans are a lot more than a product. I know, but like, it does. It does feel like wow. Like that was like it was a good movie. I'm not saying it wasn't, but when it was done, I kind of ch- I had to chuckle to myself and be like, wow, that was the longest commercial I've ever seen for a pair of shoes ever. Because <laughs> this mean, it is a big like, hey, here's the story of why why these these shoes are so important, how they changed everything. It's like I'm not saying the shoes weren't great. I'm not saying they didn't have a big cultural impact and what they represent to like sports and to you know everyone out everyone out in the world who loves them but it's like guys like this is the story about shoes like in the day this is this is big marketing for for nike and air jordans and and jordan himself and like a shoe uh, is always just a shoe until someone steps in it don't you know uh, that and that is a fantastic line it is a good line yeah because didn't they say in Cinderella? <laughs> no, that shoe didn't fit. Oh no, it did fit. Yeah, sorry, that was yeah. It did fit. No, but no, yeah. I get what you're saying. But like, as somebody who's like, I mean, th- you might think that it's you know hyperbole to say that it changed the game, but it it did change the game. I mean, it, when you look at athletes these days, the personalized approach that a lot of these companies have to 
model a brand around an athlete instead of the other way around. I mean, it started here. It started with Jordans um, and it really did sort of change the game for a lot of these companies. So uh, I do think there is sort of some uh, historical significance into making a movie like this and sort of telling us how it went down. Um, you know, and, and I, I thought it was really well done. I think Affleck's direction as usual these days is, is on point, you know, the yeah. sort of way that we maneuver around these offices, the way that we, 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 uh, go on these trips with Sonny. And interesting enough, I had just watched a 30 for 30, um, about Sonny Vicaro. There's a whole, uh, uh, really, yeah, there's a whole, uh, whole 30 for 30 about this guy. So I had watched it uh, fairly recently. Uh, Matt Damon doesn't really embody the actual guy, like how he actually was very well, to be honest. Um, but yeah, documentary came out in 2015 called soul man. Um, and this guy was the who's who on the, on the early days of the high school basketball circuit, man. Like he invented basically the idea of a high school American game. Uh, it was his idea to start giving college kids shoes away so they could wear them um, and sort of just get the brand out there. I mean, by all accounts, a very brilliant guy, also kind of a mobster with a gambling problem, which they only really touch on in this uh, in this movie. But I guess that's not really the point. The point here is that uh, is that, um, you know, it's just a super despite the movie being about something very seemingly trivial. I think that it finds a way to make it very entertaining. I like how Affleck, uh, if you notice, Mike, throughout the entire movie, um, Michael Jordan's not even really a character. You know, he's just kind of yeah. there. And we never get yeah. to actually see Michael Jordan because they haven't landed him yet. So mm-hmm. not only is Sonny and the people and Jason Bateman and and uh, Phil Knight's characters pursuing uh, Michael Jordan through the whole film, but so are we as the audience. <laughs> and we don't get to see him and talk to him until Sonny does, which I thought was a very nice touch to sort of put us in his shoes. Like the whole point of this is we're chasing Michael Jordan along with him. And I thought that was a very smart creative choice. Yeah, I like I like that choice. Um, I think it also like it it kind of showed that there was a lot more creativity and artistic vision to this movie than just hey, we're just gonna make this shoe movie or we're gonna make a movie about this product. It'll get a big hit. Like they actually were like, no, let's choose to not show Michael Jordan. Like you're not gonna show Michael Jordan the movie. No. Yeah, and I don't I don't know if there were maybe contractual like stuff going on like i don't know if like jordan was like i don't want to be portrayed so that was like a decision they had to make or if they you can portray whoever the hell you want in film i mean they they can't stop you from embodying michael jordan in film i i think it was absolutely a creative choice i mean if if so it was a very good creative choice i think um yeah like this movie you know we just talked about boston strangler i feel like boston strangler takes an what was a very exciting story and kind of makes it boring. This takes what's probably not that wild of a story and makes it really exciting. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think worked about this movie was, yeah, the goal, they, they, they do the same thing with Boston Strangler. They set out, here's a character, here's what their goal is. And yet they put a lot more personality into it. Like they give the character like, little they show little successes and like how this is the only person who could have made that little success happen they didn't really show that it was like the only person who could have figured out the boston strangle thing was kira knightley but they kind of show that with like with matt damon there's something about this guy sonny the way he talks to people what he does there like he was really the only person who could have seen no it's this it's this jordan kid and it's his family and it's his school and he's the right person and we're actually the best company for it right now 
Um, and then they, they give you a lot of little problems to solve. Um, you know, with the Boston Strangler thing, I feel like it all kind of came together at the end, but like there wasn't a step-by-step process. I was really felt like I could follow that well or, or care about following with this. It's like each next step, there's a question, a character were like, well, here's a, here's a problem. How are we going to do this next? Well, even if we do this, no one's going to say this. So how do we get people to do it? Like, they give you a lot of little problems to care about along the way. And mm-hmm. and they show how each problem gets solved and it makes it exciting to you. It makes you feel like you're watching someone play a great, shall we say, game of basketball right before your eyes, except the game of basketball is the business of basketball. So the movie does a really good job of not only like making you care about these problems, but also making you really start to think about, oh, yeah, how would you do that? Or why would it be Michael Jordan if it's like, you know, this time and like, why would anyone care about this kid? Like, what are things we should think about? And they did that really well, I think, by showing the rules of Nike. Nike has like a code of like, here's our business rules. And they keep jumping back to it, back to it over mm-hmm. and over again, keep reminding you of the steps along the way. Um, and again, goes back. That was a nice to choice too. Another creative choice that they did not have to make that they made. No to make this a more complex and artistic movie, which absolutely. And that's constant throughout this. I mean, the writing, uh, the script, I think is fantastic. The performances across the board, but just the script and they, they, the script is really the key to them doing that. What you're talking about, which is to keep scenes entertaining when really it's just guys talking in rooms, you know, and a lot of that is through dialogue, you know, they, they really play on the idea that we as the audience know more than the characters because we know the future. Um, you know, there, there's a line in there where people's like, nobody wants to see Barkley on TV, which is a hilarious <laughs> thing because he's won so, so many em- he's won so many Emmys now. Yeah, that made me laugh. Hilarious, you know. Uh, um, the one guy who's the head of the vision, Jason Bateman's character, doesn't know where the University of Gonzaga is, even yeah, though it's in Washington, funny. which is not that far away. And it's also funny to the audience because Gonzaga in the years since then has morphed into a college basketball powerhouse that everyone knows yeah. where Gonzaga is. Um, you've got uh, the guy in the uh, sort of... Uh, what is it? He's the, he works at the little party store and he talks about them drafting a guard early in the NBA draft. And he just laughs at the idea. Now nobody can, a big man can't get drafted in the NBA draft. So it's just completely flipped on its head. So it's like all these little winks at the audience because we know the future, you know, we know more than the characters in the movie. So these little nods keep it really entertaining. Um, You know, I love how they play up the, the, the shoe designer guy is sort of like this mad quirky scientist you know Mm -hmm. i was kind of getting like uh i literally thought of edna mode from the incredible (laughs) when they went down because he's like yeah yeah because he's like this guy and stuff yeah 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 yeah. so like i was getting those vibes like chris tucker's character is hilarious like Mm. that guy is so crazy like uh, so i you know the the pitches are funny i appreciate how the pitch the actual pitch to jordan doesn't come off as like overly perfect you know it's it's flawed it feels realistic so i just think that this they did a really good job with affleck's direction with the script with good performances from the a-list a-list cast uh just keeping this movie you know consistently entertaining keeping it fun to watch and you know if you're a sports person obviously i am i mean you kind of are watching this was fun for me i mean to see the origin of, of the jordans you know i'm not a big jordan guy but i got friends who got you know 50 pairs of jordans you know, mm-hmm. so it really is like a whole thing. And I'm not surprised that this movie is successful. And I'm glad that Affleck got a hold of it um, and yeah. sort of took it and made it more than just like a stripped down version of what happened. He made it more than it had to be. 
And uh, for that reason, I gave it an eight out of ten. Yeah, I think I think definitely a lot of a lot of the strength of this isn't just in the writing of it, but it was definitely in the direction of Ben Affleck. So mad props to him. I think he's a pretty solid director, actually. Of everything I've seen, award-winning director. Yeah, every every movie I've seen of his that he directed, I'm like, that was well directed. Uh, I haven't seen all of his movies. A better director than actor at this point. I don't know. That's hard to compare. I think he might be. That's that's hard to that's hard to compare. Just because he, how many movies has he directed? How many moments of his life has he acted? You know, like he's had a few. He's quite a quite a few films now at this point. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's an interesting question. I mean, has he ever won an acting award? I'm not sure he has. So I'm sure he's won like MTV's Best Kiss or something with, you know. With the uh, Toby Maguire Award, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, yeah. No, I really liked Air. I'd probably give it a B plus, or I really, really liked it. Cool. Well, that's Air. It's on Amazon Prime, so uh, you can check it out on there. All right, Mike, are you ready to dip back into the world of Marvel? We've been avoiding it for a while, but uh, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, do you realize that we're like a, a film behind on these Marvel movies because we are not going to the theaters to watch them and waiting for them to come out? And then by the time we actually watch them on Disney+, Plus, a new uh, Marvel film is in theaters, which I actually do want to go go see Guardians. Um, I think I might cry. Uh, I think. I think. I've avoided spoilers so far, but this is the... The prequel, I guess, the, the the calm before the storm of Guardians. It just came out. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, directed by Peyton Reed. Um, it is the third film to star Scott Lang, uh, a.k.a. Ant-Man, um, played by Paul Rudd. Uh, Evangeline yeah. Lilly embodies Hope Van Dyne, the Wasp. And then we've also got, um, who else we got? Jonathan Majors, Catherine Newton, David Demolshian, again, Kathy O'Brien, uh, Katie O'Brien, William Jackson Harper, Bill Murray, Michelle Pfeiffer, Corey Stoll, and Michael Douglas. In this film, uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp and their family are transported to the quantum realm to face Kang the Conqueror, who has been a much-teased Disney villain as we uh, enter this new phase of the MCU. Uh, Mike, the reviews, you know, it's impossible to avoid the noise on these big movies. It hasn't been great. Um, I can tell just by the text you've sent me that you are not going to do anything to stand up for this movie. Um, so I'm a little hesitant to just toss it to you to shred it apart. Um, but I actually ended up liking this movie more than I thought I was going to. And I can definitely tell that I like it more than, uh, most people do. So I guess I'll toss it to you to, uh, do your little shitting on routine. And then I'll tell you why it's not as bad as you say. That's fair. Um, (laughs) And, you know, if if you or others, like, did love this movie, if it's, like, your favorite love Marvel is too movie, strong, buddy. Love is too that's strong. fine. Like, I'm not, I'm not anti anyone enjoying the movie. It's just, it's, it, like, we're, we're, we're sharing our own personal opinions, right? Like, um, our opinions are not the Everyone end all. Everyone knows this, Mike. It's okay. End all Give us your review. I was just bored. It felt, like, these movies, okay. After Endgame... I feel like the story of the MCU was like completed. And then they're like, no, we're going to keep going, which I was like, yeah, I get, you know, they got the, they got the rights to these big characters. I they're going to keep going. They started doing WandaVision. I'm like, okay, they got some interesting things they can do. I'm into it. Then the TV shows just kind of, you know, they got less and less compelling, uh, sometimes even annoying, but they were still like watchable. And then like the movies, like keep going spider-man far from home was honestly i really really didn't enjoy it i love no way home then i liked shang chi a lot 
Black Widow was kind of like, and um, Thor: Love and Thunder was really just really not good. Like I was like, this is a this is actually like this is actually a bad movie. Like this is wow. Like and 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 then you know. Then, then they did. Oh God, what was it? I can't even remember all their all their movies. Why are you so, talking like, about every movie except Ant Man and the Wasp? Okay, movie? here's what I'm saying. By the, by the time we are getting now to the end of Phase Four, the start of Phase Five, or whatever we're in, this is just starting to feel like a chore. Like I'm not excited to watch these movies anymore. I feel like oh, like I have to watch it. Not even because I have to like How are you know not about for Guardians. Because I'm just not. Because I don't like. I don't know. Like, are you too old for Marvel now, Mike? Is that what the issue is here? Maybe, but it's everything about this is just starting to feel like a chore. Like no new ideas or or themes are being introduced. Nothing, nothing insightful about people or surprising about like these characters or or life is being revealed, unless it's like completely non logical to any of the story or makes any like. Okay, let's take this movie. This, okay, what is this movie actually about? Tell I me, what, what is the theme of this movie? I think it's supposed to be about Scott reconciling with his daughter and uh, um, the Wasp recon- reconciling with her mother. So I, I think about, it's supposed to be about them all sort of, exce- and then Scott getting accepted by Michael Douglas. I think it's supposed to be like, you know, about the families learning to uh, love each other, flaws and all. I think that's what it's supposed to be about. Okay. What what is the flaw that Scott and Cassie have with each other? He's never there. He was in prison. He she doesn't trust him. I think that's the crux of it. So uh, okay. and then throughout this movie, you know, he thinks that she's ditched her again, or she thinks he's ditched her again. And then he shows up, you know, when he's the oversized aunt, and we have the whole cli- or the whole we have the whole climax at the end, and then they work together and they dispel him. So so, so uh, your biggest argument here is that it's boring and surface level and these Marvel movies feel like they're going through the motions at this point. Am I feeling that correctly? I, I would say they didn't give me any reason to think that I was going to watch something that was they haven't done a bazillion times before or even like did it well. Like there was no moment of like it's like, well, like, you know, all the Marvel movies have jokes or something. Okay. But I laugh at some of them. I don't laugh at others, and that's fine. But man, like the last couple of movies, this one in particular, I, I haven't like laughed at anything. Like there was nothing in this that like made me smile or laugh. Like even Paul Rudd, who I love, like it was just like it just feels so. Like, I feel like this movie was written by Chat GPT. I'm not even kidding. It feels like they just did like the most generic cliche. It felt like someone was like, hey here's like what we do in these movies do that and like make it blah and that's what they so, did so here's oh, in what front I'll, of a green I'll, screen the whole movie I'll, is green screen ridiculous i will con- i will concede that the movie yeah. does feel like it's going through the motions a little bit it is a little bit too all over the place like at times it feels like um uh, there's just too many different elements that are sort of being brought in and the quantum realm is kind of like what really is the quantum realm? You know, like it's kind of like uh, the motifs is kind of like this, um, like you're having an acid trip, but it's also sort of like a dream world. It's also kind of space. It seemed like it was sort of based on cells and DNA. And it almost just feels like 
the 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 whoever dreamed up the look of this place basically was just like bullshitting and throwing shit at the wall and they're just like all right let's put that in there you know so i will agree that it's a little bit messy but i didn't find the film boring the way you did i i was still entertained you know i thought paul rudd is is pretty easily to watch he's pretty easy to like um you know i i thought i did chuckle a few times you know when the when Michael Douglas shows up, when Pim shows up with the big ant army and they overrun Kang, you know, I thought that was pretty fun to watch. It was a cool scene. Um, you know, it was fun. I was down with it. I, I, I sort of liked, I thought that this film had a different sort of vibe than a lot of the other Disney mo or uh, Marvel movies where it sort of felt like more like a classic adventure story, maybe kind of like Jumanji or Journey to the Center of the Earth, where they just kind of get dropped into this new land and they kind of have to figure it out. And there's just weird stuff going on and they don't really know where they're at. It's kind of like a fish out of water thing. So I felt like that was kind of a little bit different. You um, thought this movie reminded you of Jumanji? Not, not, I think it, in the, in the sense that it's where you're taking characters, not the 1995 Jumanji, the new one where you're, where you're uh, taking okay. it and you're dropping characters in like a world where they don't really quite know what's going on, but it's completely away from, you know, where we were at, you know, earth. So, you know, there's been a lot of Earth-based stuff lately. So I didn't mind just sort of stepping away. And the main reason I really like this movie is I think Jonathan Majors' as Kang was one of the best villains we've had. I mean, I, I thought his performance was fantastic. I felt it. He brought the emotion. He brought chutzpah. He brought weight. Uh, I, I, I think he... And then the reveal that we get at the end where, you know, there's tons of variants, again, leaning into the multiverse... Um, I think it sets up at least a promising future for another overarching villain that we've had since Thanos. You know, if we're going to stack Kang up against villains that we've had in a lot of Marvel movies, I mean, he's top five for me. They're just, there's not, I mean, not to say that Marvel villains have been great, but I, I think he worked really well in this and I'm excited about him as a villain moving forward. Yeah. I will say the one part I did like was the scene where, uh, Janet, uh, is just telling the story of how she met Kang. And and then you just you basically just get a chance for Michelle Pfeiffer and um uh Jonathan Majors to just like kind of showcase their acting skills with each other. And I was like, I liked that part. That part I thought was well done. Kang it made it made Kang interesting. It made him a little scary to me. And yeah, like he definitely did a good job of whenever he was on the screen, you were kind of like you were a little intimidated, but also fascinated by him. And yeah, at the end of the day, like he just he loses to a bunch of ants and gets like be beaten in a brawl with Ant Man. Yeah, I'm but like, we don't we don't know that this is that's that's really, not that top. Like, like this is the multiverse destroying guy. Like no, no, we don't know that this is the the Kang that actually matters. For all we what? know, this was this. For all we know, this was the Kang that was keeping things in order. I mean, it, it could have been, this could have been a big mistake. Like, we don't have all the information yet. I mean, we saw a bunch of variants that looked a lot more scarier than this guy. So, uh, you know, and I do think that is a little bit risky now that you're introducing a villain that has like hundreds of thousands of variants. It's like, yeah, well, which one are we one, about? Yeah. It's like, well, any one death matter. So that is going to have to be handled delicately. But um, I don't know. I wouldn't be able to take 100,000 super hyper advanced ants, especially when some of them look like, you know, Godzilla out there. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I see what you're saying. I almost would have liked it more if Kang like would have escaped and they would have like literally been like, no, Ant-Man and the Wasp, you're not strong enough to defeat me. I kind of would have liked if they would have leaned into that instead of having them actually win, uh, at, maybe win at the end of this movie. But 
I did appreciate that Scott was kind of like second guessing himself at the end, um, you know, where it's like, oh, he's setting it up. This could be bad, you know. So, I, you know, if this film did feel a little bit like sort of different than the previous Ant-Man movies, I don't think it leaned into sort of the funny, like relaxed vibe. Because if you remember the previous Ant-Man movies, like the first Ant-Man came after the first Avengers. Ant-Man and the Wasp was the first film after Avengers after Avengers uh, Infinity War, I think. I think. Yeah. So it was like a big come yeah, down. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a big come down from those big moments. And this film almost feels like it's a little too big for Ant-Man to really handle. Because uh, I kind of liked how Ant-Man was sort of like a distraction from the big overarching stories. And it was just kind of like a more stripped down sort of comedic movie. So I guess if like Thor Love and Thunder sort of went too far into the silly, I guess I kind of wish this would have leaned into it a little bit more and... Maybe maybe not gone so big picture with it because it doesn't feel like Ant Man is the best superhero for that. Well, I mean, they tried to lean into the silly with the Modok character. That was just I liked it. It worked for I, me. I, I thought it was weird. Like it, I don't know Modoc, the special. That's the what special Modoc effects. Is. I I know I've I've seen him in like a I think a cartoon or like something. I know I know that's what he looks like in the comics but they also change a lot of things from the comics i'm like did they have to do it that way or did they have to make him that guy and like it was just like i thought the modok thing did not it did not work for me i thought it looked really bad i thought a lot of the movie did not look good like and that's no offense to the poor cj artists who disney and marvel are mistreating a little out of control uh, yeah the cgi was it was a little wild better better than i think a lot of people said it was but the but i'm sorry the modok thing was just that just did not that's work for a, me. That's a hard thing to make work, though, because he is really just—I mean, it's literally. What, I know, yeah. What, 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 like, it's literally—it's pretty hard to sort of make that you know work and not feel weird. You know, it's a mechanic, a mechanized organism designed only for killing. You know, like the name itself is a joke. So it's it's hard to sort of that comes from the the era of comics where they were like really leaning into the zany. So I don't know if it if there really is a perfect way to translate that to live action without it looking goofy, you know? So. I don't know. <laughs> but, but, but that's, but that they're Disney, they're Marvel. They're supposed to be the creative, brilliant people with millions and millions of dollars at their disposal to make this work and be entertaining and interesting. And I just, I don't think they did. I will concede. What is the point of having Bill Murray in this movie? like what what, was that character needed at all like that's a good question (laughs) i mean this whole movie like i'm sorry i didn't feel emotionally connected to what was happening or the conflicts they were having it was just plot dump after plot dump after plot dumps and i go here and i'm just like what like what is the issue like show me cassie and her father having a conversation that matters it's like well she's mad at her dad because all you he's like i saved the world and she's like yeah that's all you do now like it's like I, I'm sorry. What do you want from him? Like he's he's written a book. Like he's doing things. Like he's helping people. He's successful. Like sorry, he's not saving the world every single moment of his day. Like it was just. I'm like these are dumb conflicts. They don't. I sorry. And it's like are this, we really I didn't get this movie. Didn't work. Are we really it. supposed to believe that Janet went through all this stuff and, and encountered Kang the Conqueror and like met a whole civilization down there and then just didn't mention it once like to anyone you know that so that was a little bit thinly plotted i think and the plot is a little thin here the the writing could be better with sort of how things um sort of 
unfold. And I agree. I, I don't feel the emotional weight, but Mike, I haven't felt emotionally attached to any of these Marvel movies since Endgame. So I, I don't know if we're, if that's ever coming back for us. Maybe it's just cause we were younger then. Maybe it's cause it actually was better. Uh, I think that might be true, <laughs> but uh I don't know. I, I guess I just saw the hype for this and I'm just, or I saw the negative negativity of this and I didn't feel overly negative to it. There was things about it. I enjoyed. And uh, I think Kong it, Kang is one of the best villains we've had. And so I gave it a seven out of 10. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I know we're just judging the movie for like what the movie is. Uh, obviously like at the time of this recording, Jonathan majors has had some pretty uh, interesting little scraps with the law. Well, We'll see what happens. We'll see if he's going to be kept as Kang. I don't know um, when we were doing this on May 25th, 2023. So, you know, we'll see what happens with him. But yeah, like, it, it, I mean, he he did a good job acting in the movie. That's which is all all we're focused on for the podcast at this time. But uh, yeah, like, you know, I, I feel weird if it's like, oh, man, like, they just set up this guy and now what if what if he's not the guy anymore you know but i give this one a c plus because you know paul rudd was good and i liked the whole kang thing but uh yeah overall i just i miss i miss the old mcu so do i mike but 476 million dollars at the box office it's another success so they are just going to keep making these mcu movies but i would like it if marvel could sort of Get just get back to the core of what the reason that we love these MCU movies in the first place, you know, just stop being so preachy and stop going for things that are just not that are just too much, you know, just just give us give us stripped down superhero, you know, like that, that that's what works for me, you know, like that's what works in the MCU, I think. And I, you know, I do think there is a real a true thing to, you know, superhero overload. I think people are kind of starting to feel a little bit played out in the genre. So when we're going to have movies like this, it, it needs to be something that's truly unique, like Shang-Chi, you know, like give us something that we haven't seen before that feels fresh and original, that is still entertaining. Uh, I agree that it, Marvel has slipped into maybe going through the motions a little bit, but uh, hopefully Guardians of the Galaxy will bring some of that emotional weight that we're looking for. The trailers look like it's pretty emotional, at least. So... Um, let's see. I think that's going to do it. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Mike's not a fan. Uh, I haven't heard him that negative since I made him review that last Star Wars movie. So uh, uh, wait, 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 I talk about Peter Pan and Wendy, the next one, you guys, I'm just going to go for it. No. <laughs> oh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Can we stop with the Peter Pan movies. My gosh, they make one every <laughs> damn year. So, uh, yeah, we'll try and get to that. The one. Episode. Yeah. And Peter Pan's like the kind of the one they can't do a Peter Pan film franchise. Because for live action, at least, because the actors, actors, the real actors grow up, so they can't. Yeah. Well, that's an issue, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's a question: Will they ever be able to make a live action Peter Peter Pan franchise with the same actor? Because he's going to keep growing. Hmm. That's a a question for another day, Mike. We'll we'll discuss that on our next one when we talk about Peter Pan and Wendy. All right. Sounds good. Uh, but that's going to do it, I think, for today's episode of the Second Day Film Podcast. We covered a lot of ground there. Um, I know we had uh, been away a little bit. I've seen some other stuff. I went and saw Dungeons and Dragons. I went and saw. I really want to see that uh, one. Yeah, I went and saw um, John Wick 4. Uh, I don't think I need to review John Wick 4. My review of John Wick 4 is go listen to my review of John Wick 3. So <laughs> it's basically the same thing. So. <laughs> but anyways, that's going to do it. So for Mike Nichols, I'm Brandon Chan. Thank you once again for listening to the Second Day Film.
Podcast. We'll talk to you next time and we'll see you.